You're listening to the Branches HB Podcast. I love gathering in person again, all right? I love the rhythm that I've gotten into, my family's gotten into, of being with you guys every single week. I really thought about this this last week, that my life orbits around Sundays. And I know that that's true because, you know, I'm a pastor, right? Oh, yeah, of course he would say that. He's he's gathering of God's people all Sunday. And that is true to an extent. But the first thing I do, honestly, any of you are doing right now on the first day of your week is you're gathering with God's people and you're singing songs of worship to him, and you're sitting under the authority of God's word, that is the most unbelievable way to just begin our week, right? Is that not the healthiest, most centering, most clarifying way for us to live our lives? And so I just pray that, you know, more and more of us would get into this habit. We'd make it a habit in our lives, a habit for our kids. We start our week. The first thing we do on the first day of the week is we gather with God's people, We worship the Lord. We put everything in perspective around us coming together with God's people and sitting under the authority of his word. And I'm so passionate about what I have to share with you today from Matthew chapter 8. We're back in our Matthew series. Go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 8. Austin kicked us back off in this series after we finished out that spirituality series. But it was about two months away from the gospel of Matthew. So let me just reset the table for us a bit. You know, when the book of Matthew opens, it's all about how Jesus fulfills these centuries of expectations regarding this spiritual deliverer that God was going to send to his people. And Jesus is not only that spiritual deliverer, he's also God himself. Okay, chapter 3, that is affirmed before Jesus even begins his public ministry. He is baptized by John and that voice of heaven, right? The voice of the Father. You know, this is my son whom I love in him I am well pleased. Then immediately after that affirmation of his sonship, Jesus goes and has that confrontation with the devil, right? The kingdom has come and Jesus is overtly opposing evil and being opposed by evil because the kingdom has come. And that was Jesus's message, at least as far as Matthew gives us in the shorthand summary there in Matthew chapter four, he was going around preaching, repent, change the course of your life, redirect yourself back to God Because the kingdom of God has come near. And it was a popular message in the beginning. The end of Matthew 4 says that a large crowd was following Jesus. Nothing has changed as we move to Matthew chapter 8. If we fast forward, still a lot of people following him, okay? Matthew 5 to 7 was this epic sermon, right? The Sermon on the Mount. All about the righteousness of Jesus' disciples. The righteousness of the kingdom of God. How we can live rightly with God and rightly with one another. And everyone that heard that teaching, it says, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, was amazed because Jesus was teaching with an authority that they had never experienced before. And truly, when we go through that study, we know it's an authority we've never heard since, right? It's the most compelling teaching about how to live our actual lives that has ever existed. So he's got that following still, right? And then as Matthew chapter 8 begins, Austin shared the early part last week. Right? We've got these three vignettes, these, these you know, episodes of healing where Jesus is bringing in these outsiders who weren't formerly a part of God's people. They're being brought in and they're experiencing healing right, and all kinds of deliverance simply because they're placing their trust and their faith in Jesus. And, and last week's message concluded with that verse there in Matthew chapter 8 that said, 
Many were being brought to Jesus to be delivered of evil, to experience the healing that was going on. I mean, the buzz was buzzing in Matthew chapter 8. This was bigger than Adrian's kickback, okay? And if you don't know what I'm referencing, it was that riot a few weeks back that a Gen Zer can tell you about, okay? Go research with them. But I'm telling you, it was huge. And what did Jesus do? Did he set up shop? Did he say, okay, the crowds, you know, they're all here. Let's build this even bigger and bigger and bigger before we take Jerusalem. And, you know, he set up this institution that exists all the way to this day right there in this region. No, it says he escaped. He escaped away. He left. And actually, the next two weeks, today and next week, we're going to be looking at this episode of him leaving this region in this area But today we're only looking at four verses here in Matthew chapter 8 where Jesus is on his way to leave. And as he's on his way to leaving, he's going to clarify the nature of what it means to be his follower, to be his disciple as they're walking away from the crowds. Let's look here together. Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, He gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake, that is the Sea of Galilee. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me. And let the dead bury their own dead. Like I told you, a great way to start the first day of your week with this inspiring message from Jesus. And truly, there is an inspiring message. There is an invitation in this, what feels like a rejection on the surface. But let's get into it a bit. Our episode sort of begins with Jesus showing off his introverted side. And all the introverts that are here gathered, you know, feel a little bit gratified in that. A lot of the introverts that are on the live stream, that's why they're on the live stream. They feel gratified in that. Jesus had an introverted side, right? He's looking at the crowds and says, because he saw the crowds, the many that were coming to him, he told his disciples, hey, prepare the boat. Let's shove off and go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so he's not just escaping this particular crowd. He's really just escaping the entire region. Because where he was headed was the Decapolis, which we'll see next week, which were the Greek Roman city-states. There weren't Jews in that area, so Jesus would be completely unknown in that particular area. This act of avoidance on the part of Jesus reminds us of this interesting relationship that he had to crowds, which you'll find as we go through all the different Gospels. You know, in, in the modern church today... A lot of the focus is on the number of people who are gathered in a particular church. And it's all about maximizing the amount of people that you can have at a gathering. And, you know, there's some good intentions in that. And there's some not so great intentions in that. Ways that the true gospel message gets compromised in order to gather more people. Right? Jesus didn't do that. He wasn't catering anything that he was doing to gathering more people. Just, Just get a larger crowd size. He had a mission. He had a directive. He was to preach the kingdom of God with fidelity, in truth, with integrity, and he was to demonstrate the kingdom of God by setting the oppressed free from evil spirits and by healing those who had diseases. So naturally, that was going to be a bit of a spectacle. 
and it produced some spectators. But Jesus knew that he was headed for the cross. He knew how the whole thing was going to play out, that all these crowds that were for him were going to turn against him. So as he had this large gathering, he didn't wear like a badge of honor. He wasn't really excited. In fact, it had become a bit of a practical issue. I think what we find here in Matthew chapter 8 is that Jesus is really just dog-tired. Okay? All the pressures, all the people, all the healing, all the speaking, he's tired. And would you know it, just when he starts to shove off, just when he starts to move to leave, someone stops him. Isn't that always the case when you're in a gathering? It's just when you finally decide you're going to go that someone says, hey, can I have five minutes of your time? Just when you're headed for the exit. You know, hey, I noticed you're about to leave. Can I have five minutes of your time? And you want to say, hey, did you see me when I was, you know, milling around for two hours? Why didn't you use some of that time? It's always when you're headed for the exit. And poor Jesus, here he is. He just wants to get away. He just wants to escape away for a few moments. And he stopped not once, but twice. And here these followers of him are expressing their intentions, right, to be ever more devoted to him beyond the experience of the crowd. Almost like they're saying, hey, man, can I ride with you? Can I ride shotgun on this little trip that you're doing across the lake? You know, can I get a ticket on the ferry? Can I be a part of like the inside crew that's going on this next leg of the journey? The first is a teacher of the law, a scribe. And this is a rare instance in the Gospels of a scribe, an expert in the law, actually, you know, looking at Jesus in a positive way. And he expresses this intention, right? Teacher. I will follow you wherever you go. It's a bold statement. On the surface, this is exactly the sort of sentiment that you'd expect Jesus to reward in his disciples. Exactly. That's what we need. We need people that are willing to follow me wherever I will go. But that's not how Jesus responds. Obviously, there's something about the manner of this individual that was visible in the way he was relating to Jesus. Maybe it was something that, you know, Jesus picked up on in his heart because he's Jesus and he can just sort of see the intentions. But Jesus throws cold water almost immediately on the guy's devotion. How does Jesus respond? He says, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. For the past three months, we've had some birds nesting in the eaves of our house. And when I first saw the birds assembling the nest, because I saw the little, you know, twigs and stuff on the ground, I said, well, this is kind of cute. We've never had this before. You know, uh, this will be like the Discovery Channel for my kids. You know, I'm going to watch, you know, this bird come here and lay the eggs, and then they're going to hatch, and they're going to have all these little chirpy sounds, and then you'll see their little heads stick up with their necks, and you'll see the worms going, we'll make it a whole lesson. It's going to be really, really cute. And uh, three months later, they're still there, and they're just bombing my patio and the wall that it's up against. I mean, I have literal squatters, okay? I thought I was extending the COVID moratorium on evictions to these guys. It has been way too far extended. Now I got, like, kids living out of their mom's basement up there, okay? It's time for these guys to grow up. I thought this was a seasonal thing. You know, can somebody explain to me how long these things stick around? Is this now their permanent residence? And I haven't rehomed them yet. And I'll tell you, no birds have lived with more security than under my roof, my literal roof, right there in the eaves. Now, if you think about it, Jesus did not even have that modicum, that tiny little expression 
of security. A roof over his head. The Son of God didn't have a roof over his head or somewhere to sleep the next night when he went about his ministry. I mean, think about that real feeling, what it would be like to be exposed in that way. When he says, I have nowhere to lay my head, he calls himself the Son of Man. This is a title that Jesus uses to refer to himself throughout the Gospels. It's a title of mystery, right? That comes from the Old Testament. Right? It shows up in the book of Daniel. The prophet Daniel has this really compelling end times vision of the glorified Christ. And he refers to him as the son of man in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I mean, this is the image that Jesus is recalling. So let's read it together. In my vision, Daniel said, at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days that is God and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Not a bad depiction of Jesus, right? Hallelujah. I'd follow that son of man anywhere too. You know, that's what the teacher of the law was saying. That's what the scribe was saying. I will follow the Son of Man anywhere that he's going to go. But Jesus was sharing that at least as far as the earthly component of his ministry was concerned, the Son of Man of all sovereign power wouldn't even have a place, a secure place to go to bed at night. So this teacher of the law had this sentiment, right? I will follow you wherever you go. But would he follow Jesus to nowhere? Would we follow Jesus into nowhere? You know, I think this scribe had all these imaginary destinations in his head of where Jesus was going to take him and where he was going to go along with Jesus. I think we always have sort of these imagined destinations when we have these worshipful sentiments, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. Jesus, I'm going to do this for you. And we have in our mind fixed what that's actually going to look like and where that's going to lead. You know, I think he's saying, I'll follow you wherever you go. He's saying, I'll follow you all the way to when these crowds just get larger and larger and larger and I take a place of influence in society alongside you, Jesus. I'll go with you that far. I think he's saying, I'll go with you as far as it takes to go to Jerusalem and get a role in the council that leads the Jews when you usurp their authority. I think he's saying, I'll go with you wherever you go. I'll go to the Roman governor's estate and burn it to the ground. I'll be right next to you when we establish Jewish independence. He's saying, I'll risk all these things for you, Jesus, to get all those rewards. But would he follow Jesus into being destitute? Would he follow Jesus into being irrelevant? Would he follow Jesus so that he becomes numbered among these followers of another crucified criminal? You know, all of us are willing to risk a certain amount of ourselves if there's a reward in it for us. And we all have a different threshold. Some of you are just willing to risk all the time, even if the reward is really far flung, you know, and far fetched. Like some of you play the lotto, you know, that, that risk is just unimaginable. You're never going to win. But if you do, remember the ministry of branches. <laughs> but you're never going to win. I mean, the risk there, you just. It, it, you're not going to, but we could increase like your odds and you're going to get more people involved. If I doubled your odds, 
that you're going to win $500 million off a dollar, you know, that would get some more of you. If I quadrupled it, if I did it times 100, times 1,000, times 100,000, what if it's one in three odds? You put in a dollar, you're going to get 500 million. Uh, now, all of you are involved, right? You all, you know, take a certain amount of risk for a reward. Some of you are buying AMC stock for 100 bucks a stock. You know, with what's going on in the market right now, you're crazy, all right? All of us will assume a certain amount of risk if there is a profit to us. But how many of us will risk for Jesus if there's no earthly reward? How many of us will really risk ourselves, our resources, our time, our lives, if there is no actual payoff? Would this scribe follow him if there was not going to be an earthly payoff? Would we follow Jesus if you could play out both scenarios of our life, our life with Jesus, our life without Jesus? And, you know, here we have all the comforts and we have all the fixings in this world without Jesus, and we diminish some of that with Jesus. And if you could play out both lives, all right, which one are you going to take if there is no earthly payoff? Now, this is a hard teaching, especially for us in Southern California, where some of us don't just have one stable roof above our heads, but some of us own two, three, four different homes with structurally sound roofs. And we're quick with our sentiments toward Jesus when we're worshiping, right? Jesus, I will follow you. I love you. I'll go where you lead. And the spirit of Jesus prompts us and says, how far will you really go? How far will you really go? Will you and I follow Jesus to places where we end up with less than when we began? Will we follow Jesus to places where we lose rather than gain? Consider that. Will you follow Jesus to places where you end up with less than when you began? Where you lose instead of gain? See, the way of Jesus comes with a guarantee that we will become soul rich. He guarantees that if you walk with me, you will become soul rich. But there is no additional promise of worldly gain. All the agendas of the world take a back seat. So that theme continues as this next disciple enters. He tells Jesus he'll follow him, but first he wants to go and bury his father. So I know what you're thinking. Wait a second. What's this guy doing at this gathering with his dead father along with him? You know, now we got like weekend at Bernie's, you know, the picture right there. See, you didn't get the Gen Z reference, but I tip my hat to all of you. Weekend at Bernie's. All right. You know that reference. So a lot of us are going, what in the world is going on here? Is he, did he just die and he left his dead dad? He's got to go back. He's got to bury him. He brought him to the gathering. Well, in a Jewish burial, when someone would die, they bury him within 24 hours. So it's really unlikely, uh, you know, from a practical standpoint, that he's left his dad, that he's brought his dad along to this. He died at the gathering. Jesus might have healed him, right? I mean, so this is likely a sentiment that's lost on us where he's saying, look, my father's coming to the end of his life. Maybe he's got a year, he's got two years, he's got five years. Let me wait until he passes away. Then I'll receive this inheritance and I'm going to join your band after that. And I'll even have some resources with me that I can use to help with the ministry. And Jesus doesn't mince words. He says, follow me. Let the dead bury the dead. It's a little harsh, I think. This guy is referenced as a disciple. He's somebody who's applying himself to the way of Jesus. And he's not even doing anything necessarily wrong. This was good in that ancient culture to sort of honor your heritage, the legacy of your family and all that. What's the deal? 
The issue seems to be that this well-meaning disciple has his priorities out of whack, okay? He's gone away from his gatherings with Jesus. He's been listening to everything, and he got really excited in his mind. And he said, you know what? Let me map out the future. I've got the perfect plan. I'm kind of stuck in this situation right now. But in a couple years, this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen, and then it's all going to come together perfectly so that I can then join Jesus at this stage in my life. And so I think he's like staying up all night thinking about this presentation that he's going to give to Jesus. I can't wait to tell Jesus that I'm going to be devoted to him, and I'm going to catch up with him later on down the road after this happens and support his ministry. And he gives the whole presentation to Jesus. Really excited, right? And Jesus just glances at it for a second and says, let the dead bury the dead. Essentially, that future plan and that vision and all those accomplishments and goals that may or may not happen, they're completely arbitrary to Jesus. He writes it all off in an instant. But this is sort of the human nature of a lot of us to pour all of our energy, emotional, physical, mental energy into these human accomplishments and achievements and goals and dates that are way out in the future. We create five-year plans, 10-year plans, all these different plans, and everything gets poured into getting to those places. And they're like black holes from which no light escapes. Like everything gets focused that particular direction. You know, in our society, People could spend, you know, their whole life right now just working to get that promotion at work. That's it. They've just got this arbitrary goal set in their mind, this accomplishment. They say, I got to get that promotion. So they put everything on the back burner and they grind, 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 right? Or they're just staring at the stock market figures every single day because they got this goal, this arbitrary goal that they've set up that fits into this larger plan of, you know, achieving this sort of trading balance. And if I could just get to this sort of trading balance... Or if I could just get myself financially to the place that I could own a home as I chase this market to who knows where. Or if I could just remodel my home until I get to this what goal in the future, what place in the future where I finally arrive, where the home's remodeled. The style's changed. you got to start again. Right? It's all these goals that we wrap up all of our hearts in. And when we finally get to the top, like I was referencing of these hills, we look up and we see there's another hill even larger over the horizon. You know, we've got our life mapped out for us in these, you know, fixed stages. We all know this, right? We're, we're living life on tracks. You're going to get your high school diploma, then you're going to go to college, then you're going to get your degree so you can get the right internship, so you can get the right job, so you can get married, so that you can have kids, so you can afford a house, so that you can raise your kids to go to college, to get the right degree so they get the right job. And along the way, you're going to invest well so you can retire. Croak. That's it. That's the tracks that our lives are lived on. And all the while, our spiritual journey with Christ can exist as an afterthought, burning somewhere in the background. All those stages, it's really interesting. All those accomplishments, they become accomplishments to have arrived at the degree, to have arrived at marriage, to have arrived at retirement and investing well. You know, they're, they're virtuous to people in society. You've done it. When are you going to do it? I did it. You did it? You know, it, it's like it is what is celebrated. But it says nothing. Those achievements say nothing of the quality of the life that we're living. They say nothing of the quality of our spiritual life. They say nothing of actual virtue. What is truly virtuous? 
You know, you can get a degree and you can increase your competency in whatever discipline that you've applied yourself to, but that says absolutely nothing about your character. Oh, but we call that a virtue. The degree is the virtue. Well, that says nothing about your character. A lot of people get married. You know, a lot of people have kids. Having kids or getting married says nothing about the quality of you as a spouse, as a parent. Some people have managed to own homes in Southern California. What are you doing to extend shelter to those who have no home? You can arrive at any trading balance you want online, but you can be broke in the kingdom of God. You can raise your kids to be twice as successful as you. They can go to twice the college you went to, get twice the amount of degrees, get paid twice as much money at a job in the future, and they can be twice the son of hell, spiritually speaking. Jesus says, following him to priority. He needs priority over every other goal and accomplishment and achievement in our lives. Because if he doesn't take the priority, he's going to become an afterthought. And guess what kind of quality of life we're going to live? The quality of our life is going to suffer immensely. Jesus says, wake up, buddy. Live for my kingdom today. Follow me, not in the future. Follow me today. Because if you don't, you're just coasting on the lazy river to the land where the dead bury the dead. When we hear teachings like this from Jesus, a lot of us are liable to be discouraged. Ugh. Sometimes, guys, we need our bubbles burst. We need to be shown if there's some emptiness to our vision for our lives. Take this gentleman, for instance, is waiting to bury his father before he goes to follow Jesus. He's waiting to bury his father before he goes to follow Jesus. What if the next day he's riding on a donkey, falls off, and his father ends up burying him? Then what was it all for? There he is. He's got his five-year plan. <laughs> Where'd that go? Fell off a donkey. He's waiting to bury his father, but anything could happen the next day and his father could end up burying him. And then what was it all about? So a lot of times we look at these hard teachings of Jesus and we think, oh, what a discouragement. Well, that's because we're a little bit attached to this vision of reality that we have. And we need to die to that vision and accept this good medicine. Jesus will speak hard truth to our human hearts and it's what we need to hear. If you'll notice, this isn't even a rejection either. This is an invitation. He says to the man, follow me. I picture it sort of like the rich young ruler, right? Where he didn't say, hey, you've done a great job, but you, you've got this, you know, just stranglehold of money over you that's keeping you from really growing into this next phase of your life. And he doesn't say that to shame the rich young ruler. He says it with compassion. He looked at him with compassion. He said, I love you. And that's why I'm going to reveal this thing to you that you can't see for yourself. And that's the same impression that I get when I was sitting with this passage, when it was challenging me in my study. And what I got left with is this sense of, wow, you know, I'm 34 years old. I've been walking with Jesus 19 years of my life. This passage challenged me. And it made me want to go further. It made me want to go further in my following. It questioned me, it made me question, how can I take more risks for the kingdom? How can I take more risks for Jesus with the expectation of less earthly reward? 
How can I allow Jesus to sit down with me and scrutinize my five-year plan and my priorities and reorder my vision? That's the invitation of Jesus right here. And I pray it's one we'd all receive, whether we're 18 or we're 80, no matter if you've walked with Jesus double the time I have or this is your first week right here. That we'd say, Jesus, how can I follow you further than I have up to this point? How can I risk more for you and expect less return in this life? Scrutinize and challenge my priorities and reorder them according to your kingdom today. I want to share a story I didn't share at first service because after I preached, I was worshiping and the Lord just kept bringing back this story from this week because we're a part of Serve City, right? We've been invited to a bunch of things the city is doing, specifically with the initiative of homelessness. And there's this uh, house in my neighborhood, actually, that I live, you know, my, my bedroom's on the second story, and we've got our windows there. And I can actually see this house on the next street over that has this cross that's lit up every night, and it's been lit up all through COVID, and it just beams into my house. Sometimes I'm like, yeah, great. And then other times I'm like, that is great. And because um, it's really, really bright. And I've always kind of, you know, wondered, but it, it's the street behind me. You know, we haven't gotten there yet. And I was invited to this gathering where there was this woman who was going to be housing two elderly folks who've been living out of their cars in Huntington Beach. And when I look up the address, it's that house. So I go to this gathering, and there's a city council members, there's a couple pastors who've been involved. They identified these folks. And one of them's in their 80s living out of their car here in Huntington Beach. Imagine being your 80s and living out of a car. So they identified these two individuals, and this is a woman, she's a Christian, obviously, and she was going to take, you know, some renters, she's a single woman, and they connected the dots and said, would you be willing to take these two gentlemen in to live with you, and they'll rent rooms from you until they get their life back on the tracks, and she said yes, and so there's all this fanfare, right? All the council members, serve cities there, the other pastors, everybody's doing photo ops. I avoided them, just so you know. And then they're going to leave. And this woman is going to have two people who are housed in her house off the street. And that's when the real work is going to begin. And no one's doing a photo op. And maybe no one's even touching the situation with a 10-foot pole. But Michelle, my neighbor, is going to be laboring and praying and giving every single day for this success story that's going to be one sentence in some local newspaper. She is ending up with less than when she began. She is going to lose rather than gain, at least potentially from the way that we might see it in the world's eyes. And no one's going to know except the Lord. And now 400 people at branches. But it was the Lord. I want to invite us to consider that is the nature of true discipleship with Jesus. And that was the calling on Michelle. What's the calling for you and I? What's the calling for you and I? Are we really desirous of this journey with Jesus that we want to go further? If so, I'd invite you to pray with me right now with all earnestness in your own heart. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we do 
end up speaking in worship, in our lives, in our prayers, uh, our, our intention to follow you wherever you would lead us. And a lot of times, if we're honest, we don't know where that's going to end up. And we've got all kinds of imagined destinations in our heads. But Lord, we want to set those aside right now. Because Lord, you're calling us places that may at times be uncomfortable for us. Often will be uncomfortable for us. So Jesus, I'm asking right now, what does it mean for me, Andrew, to follow you further than I've gone up to this point? Lord, I'd ask that all my brothers and sisters right now in this space would ask you that question, believing that you can answer it dynamically for each of them. The same way you were able to reveal the heart of that rich young ruler, where he needed to grow, you can show each of us. So Lord, I pray my brothers and sisters right now would present that before you. What does it mean for them? What does it mean for me to follow you further than I've gone to this point? What does it mean for me to risk for your kingdom with less reward in mind? with less earthly reward in mind. Maybe the only reward we're gonna receive for some of the ways that we risk and serve and give is a reward that comes in your kingdom in heaven. Lord, that's the way that you lived. So Lord, teach us, we're your disciples, you're our teacher, you're our Lord and master. Would we follow after you? Speak to my brothers and sisters in very clear ways. How are they to risk more for your kingdom, more for you with maybe less promise of earthly reward. Lord, what priorities do you want to reorder in their life? What five-year plan do you want to crumple up and throw out this morning? What achievement have they put in their mind? Have I put in my mind that's a 10 out of 10 important that you just want to drop all the way to the bottom of the list and make a one? What's filling our mind? What's taking all our energy, emotional energy, focus? It's a number 10 on our list that just is going to drop to a one. Jesus, would you reorganize our priorities? Would you scrutinize and challenge our plans? Would you make your kingdom, your way, living for you this day, our number one? That every day we'd wake up, we wouldn't be coasting on any lazy river. We'd be waking up just like we're starting this week. First thing we're doing, we're offering this time to you. That every day we'd wake up, we'd offer the day to you so that the quality of our life in you would not be neglected. Lord, if we're walking with you, everything else is going to fall into place, you taught us. So challenge our priorities. What do you want to challenge? What do you want to rob of importance that the world would say, that's the most important one? Just take it away from us right now, Lord. Would you stand with me as we worship? And I want to invite you to keep considering those questions. You know, Jesus says, ask, seek, knock, be persistent in prayer. So if you don't feel like the Lord gave you an impression of where you're to give, where you're to risk, if you don't feel like he challenged any of your priorities, keep asking. Maybe he's speaking it, but we can't hear yet. So I challenge you to just keep praying those prayers this week, certainly during this time of worship as we consider our God.
Thanks so much for listening to the Branches HB podcast. For more information on Branches, you can visit our website at brancheshb.com or stay up to date with us on Instagram at brancheshb. As always, we'd love to have you at one of our Sunday gatherings. So come visit us at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m. Locations are available on our website. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.